uh, from chapter 3. If you weren't uh, with us last week and you missed the opportunity of beginning what is a fairly strange book, uh, we find ourselves about two and a half thousand years ago and we find ourselves in the midst of uh, a number of visions that Zechariah the prophet had in a very sleepless night. We pick it up, chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I'll put rich garments on you. And then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. And see the stone I've set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone. I'll engrave on it an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I'll remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbour to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. And he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lamp stand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and one on the left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And he answered, do you not know what these are? Well, no, my Lord, I replied. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become less. Uh, you will become level ground, and then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of "God bless it, God bless it." And then the word of the Lord came to me: The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple; his hands will also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. And then I asked the angel, What are the two olive trees on the right and the left? And again I asked him, What are the two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? And he replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. And so he said, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now we're going to pick up our next reading. Uh, Kathy's going to read to us from John's Gospel. The second reading is from John chapter 1, verse 29, and it's on page 750. 
The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that what Jesus John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here ends the reading. You'd do well if you um, jumped back to Zechariah, uh, that reading from chapter 3, page 669. Hopefully your interest is peaked enough that uh, it's a strange reading. It's not the kind of stuff we normally uh, are used to hearing uh, in the Word of God. Uh, lots of pictures. Uh, but God, uh, in his kindness, still speaks. So let's pray that he would speak clearly to us. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the goodness of your Word and the power of your Word. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, even now that you would be taking away the distractions from our hearts and minds... Uh, keep away from us all the, the things that uh, 
prevent us from hearing your word clearly, uh, whether it's just uh, the distractions of good things or whether it's the sin in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would give us humility as we come before your word, a desire to know you better, and that by hearing your word we might trust and love you all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, In 1893, uh, William Lane, who's not a name I expect you'd know, but he took a a group from our shore over to Paraguay. Uh, He was a visionary man. Uh, He he set out to create the perfect community. Uh, He entitled it New Australia. Uh, And it was going to be built by the true Australian bushman. And so he picked those kind of people to go with him. Uh, And it was built on these six principles. One, a common hold rather than a commonwealth, the idea being that if you chose to leave the community, you'd get your share of the society's wealth. Uh, secondly, a brotherhood of English-speaking whites. Thirdly, life marriage. Fourth, preservation of the colour line. Five, teetotalism. And six, communism. Now, as you can tell from these uh, essential rules, he wasn't just a visionary, he was a left-leaning racist as well. Uh, And you won't be surprised if I tell you that his community collapsed, actually, within years. Uh, Lane himself took a splinter group off to another locale in Paraguay, a place called Cosme, uh, and it collapsed too, and he ended up back in New Zealand, uh, where he finished his life. Now, I don't raise him uh, just for mockery. I actually want to raise him because it brings home the difficulty of, of creating the perfect community, how hard it is. And yet it's a vision we, we, none of us have given up on. You know, we vote our politicians in and out on their ability to deliver that perfect community, or at least get us closer to it. You know, Kevin Rudd is going to be judged by Australians uh, and on how much they share his vision of this big populous Australia by 2050. You know, Julia Gillard's NAP plan tests and my school website, they're all attempts to, to make our schools these perfect communities, or at least better. You know, and again, I... It's not that we mock them, that they're good. What they do is point out our longings. We'd love to be part of that perfect place. Uh, we went away uh, with the extended family this week, and even on a small scale, uh, you realise as nice as it can be, it's far from perfect. You know, and yet, we rightly invest money and time to build nice communities. And what God offers us this morning in these strange visions is the vision of the perfect community. And even better, he actually gives a vision of what he is going to build. As we read earlier in Zechariah 4.6, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. There's a verse to hang on to. And it's a vision I want to suggest it would be worth us buying into and investing in. A vision of the perfect community that actually will happen. Uh, Three points I want us to grasp. We're actually trying to deal with uh, more information than just those two chapters, but all the way from chapter 1 through to chapter 6. Three points I want us to hold on to. Uh, First, God himself will build it. Second, that the perfect community is with sin's departure. And thirdly, it comes with God's return. God will build it, sin's departure, his return. Let's first of all look at how God will build it. Uh, it's still 520 BC, not today, I mean in Zechariah's time. Uh, the audience was still a group of exiles who were brought back to an underwhelming situation in Jerusalem. Uh, the city of God on earth was, was hardly the envy of nations. Uh, they were just this little corner of a vast Persian empire. And they were a long way from being the perfect community. 
Yeah. And, and Zechariah's contemporary, if you, if you go like two pages before, you'll see the book of Haggai. He's a contemporary of Zechariah and he's preaching up a storm and he's calling the people of Judah, you get with God's program. You stop worrying about your own household. You start taking seriously the task of rebuilding my household, the temple. That's what Haggai's doing. But through Zechariah, God wants the same people to hear a, a different point. Rather than challenging them, go on, get going, the Lord wants them to be comforted by what he will do for them. So the verse I mentioned before, 4.6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It says it explicitly. It's something God will do. But the whole style of these visions resonates with that truth. So God speaks in surreal visions, uh, using this kind of pattern of language that exudes otherworldliness, not normal, boring means. You know, what we read earlier was, was two, the central planks of eight visions that Zechariah received in that one night. Uh, there's a summary on the screen just of what's in those visions, uh, the eight of them. Uh, you know, from, from, from one seven through, he's, he's given visions that make, I want to suggest, Salvador, Salvador Dali's artworks look fairly prosaic. You know, the first vision has these uh, riders on coloured horses that are managed to ride to the ends of the earth and back. Um, there are angelic tour guides. Uh, the second vision has these horns, which aren't actually attached to anything. They just kind of, you know, I don't know, horn around. Uh, and they get frightened by a bunch of carpenters. Uh, not to mention the kind of visions we actually had read in 3 and 4 where you've got the high priest standing in the dock before Satan as the kind of accuser. You've got a lampstand which, which uh, doesn't just have a, a jar of oil for supply but it has kind of trees permanently filling it. Uh, yet the picture of these visions is intentional. It moves our thinking into the realm of divine action, not, not the kind of ordinary natural pattern of life. It's something we can't do. Uh, now we heard you know, just before Steve updated us uh, our parish council's got plans for redeveloping the, the church site uh, approved. And it was all you know, done in the very sensible language of getting a DA from North Sydney Council and the, the consultation process and architectural designs. And, and all this kind of normal, sensible language is right and it points to the need to, you know, we need to roll up the sleeves and get working to make it happen. But if uh, Steve had stood up and spoke of receiving these plans direct from angels... Uh, and having a tour of what the site would look like and, uh, and this vision of our church being protected, not by a security system, but, but walls of flame with God himself there for keeping away any villains from damaging our church property. We'd be, we'd be pushed, that's what's promised in 2 verse 5, um, we'd be pushed then to, to see that we're speaking of realities in a whole different realm, things we can't do, things only God can do. God gives these eight visions of the perfect community so that when we see this strange, obscure language, you don't walk away thinking, oh, I must get on and make this happen, but rather walk away with hope and comfort. God himself will make this happen. God himself will build the perfect community. And that takes the weight off their shoulders and ours. You know, we, we can't build a utopia. And the attempt can, can actually be crushing or the burden of it can be crushing to try and create the perfect community. In Ireland, there's a, a generation called the Pope's Children. Um, they're called that. They're, they're kind of the baby boom generation of, of the Republic of Ireland and they happen straight after a papal visit and uh, an encouraging word from the pontiff. Now, they are the first generation of uh, Irish that, that enjoyed wealth and opportunities. Uh, one analyst wrote how um, 
they shifted from a life uh, with a set path, you know, you just do what your dad did, uh, to options. But the analyst also went on to talk about how with the options came the prospect of failure. And for some it proved crushing. You know, the perfect community is not one we can create. You know, just look at every church you've been a member of, if uh, you're not persuaded. Uh, and if God laid that pressure on us, it would crush us. And too often, I suppose we in church circles forget that, don't we? And it's really easy to push those uh, pressure guilt points. You know, our desire to, to be practical and relevant, uh, in, in our honest desire to encourage each other to take godliness seriously, we can, we can make the creating of God's kingdom seem so ordinary that it's just our work and it seems to lack the divine. And it can crush people on the way. What the visions do, what the strangeness of the language does, is open us up to see this is what God will do. And so we get of hope and comfort. Well, what about the content of these visions? You know, there, there's, I suppose, two key components that hold the structure of these eight visions together. Um, again, I've, the structure will be on the screen. Uh, there's God's returning and wickedness being cast out. You know, and, the, and those visions from one to eight point down into the middle, chapters three and four hold it all together. Uh, sin's departure is, is the, I suppose, the dominant theme in, in the final three visions. But it first comes to our attention in chapter three, the fourth vision, the one with the high priest. So why don't you have a look at that one, Zechariah 3, one. Uh, it opens with Joshua. Uh, he's, he's the high priest. He's not the guy who took them from the promised land. Different, different Joshua. Um, he is there standing in the docks and Satan is on the other side as the prosecutor accusing him. And while the angel rebukes Satan in verse 2, the scary reality is that Joshua is guilty. And that's a problem for any perfect community, isn't it? The guilt of the people. Yeah, he stands before the Lord and he is exposed in verse 3 as wearing filthy clothes. Yeah, and this is bad news not just for, for him, but for the whole community and even us. See, as a high priest, Joshua was their spiritual leader. The, he, their acceptability depended on his. Yeah, how should someone appear before God? Well, the Old Testament prescribed that when a, when a high priest did appear before God, he should look perfect and resplendent. In Exodus 28, 36, there's a verse where it talks about he would wear um, a plate of pure gold and engraved on the front of it would be a seal, holy to the Lord. Yeah, that's how you should appear before the Lord, isn't it? And yet Joshua is found before the Lord unholy and unclean. The sin of his heart is visible in his rags. And at that point, the Lord makes a remarkable declaration. Verse 4, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Now, what amazing words. Declared saved. You know, what better could we ask to hear from God than him to see us in all our weakness and failure and still say, I've taken your sin away. And it is a word for us all because the Lord goes on to speak of a branch. In verse 9, if you flick over, a branch will coming, uh, come God's servant. 
In verse 10, in that day he will remove the iniquity of the whole land. Uh, That is, in an instant, he will deal with the problems that rip apart our utopian dreams. He is going to create a community, in verse 10, of paradise. Uh, That's the picture where where neighbours invite their neighbours over to go and have a sit under the vine and fig tree. In other words, kind of enjoy, you know, let's share together, let's enjoy the good life, let's enjoy peace, let's enjoy abundance. It's what we actually had read in John's Gospel. Um, Jesus said to Nathaniel after Philip called him, I saw you under the fig tree. I saw you a glimpse of the paradise that was coming. He goes, you are the Christ, you're the one who's going to bring it. It was straight after John the Baptist had pointed out that Jesus was the Lamb who in a day would take away the sin of the world. See, the perfect community will only come when sin departs, either in forgiveness here in chapter 3, this fourth vision, or in those final three visions, the other way sin departs is in judgment. So vision five, there's this this flying scroll. Um, The the commands of God are the size of a billboard and can fly around the world, so there's no way of escaping it, Uh, and it stands against the unrepentant. Vision 6 has this woman in a basket called wickedness and the basket's sealed up and it's transported over to Babylon. That is the symbolic home of opposition to God. It's eradicated from the community. And then the final vision, four chariots go out to execute judgment on the world and bring the true rest of God's established rule. Putting it all together, the perfect community will be created. God is building that. God will eradicate sin finally. But it doesn't have to be in judgment. You know, the words spoken over Joshua, see your sins are taken away, can be spoken over you and me. Yeah, and I think the beauty of this vision is that it deals with our reality. You know, God sees what Joshua is like, but he doesn't turn away and he doesn't try and cover it up. You know, the Satan might be a liar, but when he accuses um, us of our sin, he speaks the truth. But God speaks a better truth that can actually deal and get rid of and take away that sin. The American novelist uh, John Cheever uh, was highly successful in the 50s to 70s, won things like Pulitzer Prizes as well. Uh, His outward life was this kind of normal suburban dream, uh, but the dark reality was that he was miserable and petulant, a belittling husband, a difficult father, a severe alcoholic, uh, tormented by his... Uh, secret bisexuality. You know, on the surface, he was that kind of pre-fall Tiger Woods. Everything looked perfect. <laughs> uh, but underneath. And his biographer said the key to his troubled nature was his fear of being found a small and dirty fraud, an imposter in his social pretensions. You know, that was his greatest fear, that he'd be seen for what he was. And before God, maybe that's your fear. And my past week has been one of those ones where I've just been profoundly aware of my sin. You know, just incident after incident, I feel like I've been exposed uh, again and again. One of those weeks where I'm just fairly ashamed of uh, obvious failures. I mean, the accuser is right, you know, where, when in my mind I've genuinely asked, why would God persist with someone like me? And it's been a real mercy of God to read this passage at the same time. You know, a vision of God who sees the reality of sin and he hears the reality of true accusations and still he declares my sin taken away because, because of the work of the branch, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has finished it all. 
Yeah, that's the word of comfort here, isn't it? God is building a perfect community. He's getting rid of sin by bearing that guilt, and ultimately it will be by judgment. And so when Satan is accusing you, when you see the reality of the sin in your life, just like God sees it, when those doubts well up into your mind about, about how is it that someone as obviously flawed as you can be in God's perfect community, you know, don't stand in the dock and try and come up with a defence. Don't hide it. Just picture this vision. And perhaps here again the poetry of Charity Bancroft. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, God is building the perfect community. It means eradicating sin. And by his grace, you and I can be a part of it. Now the third, I suppose, point, the the final comfort of this, this perfect community is in that God will return and sustain it. Yeah, it's that fifth vision, it's, it's what we have as chapter 4, uh, the golden lampstand, the, the, the two olive trees. Um, so the first three visions are about God returning and the security he brings. You know, in, in the first vision there's this rider among the myrtle trees who sees this, you know, patrols the world and sees the world is smug and at peace. Uh, but the focus of that vision is that God will return and bless his people. And, and then in the second vision, these four horns and four craftsmen, God is going to humiliate the powerful enemies, those horns that have been oppressing his people and kept them in fear. And he's going to humiliate them with a, the weakness of a carpenter, not a, not a military leader. And, and then vision three, there's this, this ma- a surveyor, a man with a measuring line, uh, that, that he actually doesn't have to do the job of building the walls because God will protect his people. It will become a place of refuge when God returns. And what Vision 5 adds, this chapter 4, is that continued presence and sustenance of God. You know, in verse 1, 4, 1, Zechariah is woken. It's that special. Don't miss this. And he sees a menorah. Um, do you know what a menorah is? It's the, the Jewish seven candle thing. You know, you've got the one in the centre and, yeah. Uh, seven can- It's the lampstand that he sees. Uh, it's normally found in the temple. That is, it's the idea of being in the presence of God. Yeah, and these are special lampstands. In verse 6, they'll be built not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Um, it's the idea of the, God being present amongst his people again. The temple will, will be rebuilt. Yes, Zerubbabel, he's uh, the governor, surprisingly not a name that's kind of caught on over time like Joshua's has. Um, Zerubbabel will be physically, yes, through. He will rebuild in verse 7 to 10. Uh, the physical temple. You know, he will have success over mountainous difficulties if he obeys, and he will obey the obedience in obedience to God's plan. Because it's really the Spirit's achievement. In verse 10, it has seven eyes. It's all seeing, all knowing. And this menorah, what's weird about this is that it's eternally fueled. In verse 11 and 12, the olive trees that are on the right and left this isn't just fueled by, it's got a nice little jug that you occasionally top it up. It's got the tree itself, olive oil trees, just pouring continually in. This is an eternal, unending supply. Now, what's going on in this vision? The vision is about how God will sustain his people. You know, the people are the lampstand. Just like in the book of Revelation, you know, John uses it to speak of the church there. You know, it's people who are strengthened by God's spirit to work out his plans. See, God doesn't... 
you know, lay a plan down and say, off you go, go and fix it. God doesn't, you know, revisit his people and then disappear again. Perfect community has God at the centre, strengthening for his work by his spirit. You know, at Easter time, we just finished Luke's gospel and at the end of it, you might remember, Jesus is risen and what are the disciples doing? They're cowering in fear. You know, seeing wasn't enough. Seeing the work of God didn't kickstart them into action. They, and God knows that, so what God does is he works within them. He promises to strengthen them with power on high at the end of Luke's Gospel, to pour himself into them. And after receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, what do the disciples go and do? They go and preach. They go and build the kingdom of God. They make known what God is doing under severe persecution. And that's the power of the Spirit of God in us to do his great work. Our church supports 16 women whose husbands have been in prison for their faith in Vietnam. Uh, a few weeks ago at our 6.45 congregation, we got an update. We got two letters from uh, these women read out. And it's just remarkable to hear their gratitude. Uh, gratitude to us for, for helping out, but even more f- to God. You know, as their husbands struggle in prison, as uh, one particularly struggles with terrible health. But to hear their gratitude, it was humbling and so too was the clarity of their faith, their firm faith. You know, and it's all evidence of God's sustaining spirit. Surely they wouldn't hold on without it. Yeah, yes, the perfect community needs sin cast out, but, but even more it needs that the ongoing work of God to maintain it. So without the Holy Spirit, our, our church would dissolve just like Lane's New Australia, you know, into splinter groups and factions. You know, the great work of God is not by you and I going around asserting our strength and how good we are at things, but demonstrating that we depend on the Spirit's power. That is, we do things in obedience to him. We don't do our plans and things our way. The the perfect community is, is not something we alone will achieve, but thankfully God can. You know, as we look at these visions, you might still wonder, aren't these just a little bit unreal? Aren't they just as kind of crazy as Lane's New Australia? And we look at them a little and it's, we've got to realise it's still a work in progress. You know, these visions were in part fulfilled in, in Zechariah's day. The temple itself was rebuilt. But, but a greater bit was fulfilled when, when Christ returned and the Spirit, when Christ came and the Spirit was poured out. But God is still engaged in building it. That final vision of judgment going out hasn't happened. And so we're invited to actually share in it. Today I want you to be comforted. I want you to be excited as well about the vision God puts forward for us of the perfect community. This is one worth investing in because it will actually happen. Hang on to the words from Zechariah 4.10. Don't despise the day of small things. In other words, don't be discouraged and don't think it's unworthwhile to invest heavily in what God is doing. Bringing people into the perfect community by, by speaking of his work. You know, Judah seemed weak, but in the hands of a great God, they do great things. You know, the activities of church can often seem so weak. You know, we can run a community lunch and you know, we might share a little of our lives and what God's doing, and it seems you know, not that many are coming, but no, no, don't despise the day of small things. 
You know, I've had people who, who tell me of um, conversations we had years ago where I said something that was really helpful to them and I, you know, to my shame, sadly, can't even remember what I said and sometimes can't even remember we spoke. Uh, and yet it's those off-handed conversations that seem so small, you know, that, that chat you have with a colleague at work about the good work God is doing in your life that actually seem nothing compared to the major business contract that you're there to sign and yet it's small but don't despise it. The gospel might seem ineffectual against the tide of culture, but don't despise it, invest in it. For the perfect community will not be built by might or power, but by the Spirit of God, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the perfect community that you have, that you are building and have established. We thank you that sin will be gotten rid of and you hold because of Jesus. You do not hold our sin against us. And we thank you that you are present amongst us. We thank you for your spirit that sustains us. And we pray that you would help us to have a big vision of what you are doing to excite us about your plans, that we would be comforted and long to invest even more heavily in what you are doing and that we would never despise the day of small things but rather look forward to when you will fulfil it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.